Here we are on the last session of our Ten Commandments series. Seems like we've been in this for a long time, but at the same time, it seems like it's come rather quickly. So I'm glad that you're here tonight as we wrap up this series. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20, as we have been. We'll look at verse 17 tonight. There is something within each of us that we often do not recognize, we often do not acknowledge. We don't really even think about it. But within our bodies, there are millions of tiny living organisms, which are called the human microbiota. These are bacteria that are microbes in the skin, on the skin, in the nose, in the mouth, and especially in our guts. We acquire these bacteria before we're born, and they live with us throughout all of our lives, and we don't even notice them. But there was a theory that came out about uh, the Marvel superhero Captain America, and it captured my attention the other day, and it relates to this. Uh, in the comics and in the movies, Steve Rogers was this skinny little guy who had all these physical ailments, and he couldn't join the military during World War II, and he felt that was the right thing to do for him. He was supposed to be in the military to go and to defend his country and to fight for freedom, but he was not able to enlist due to his health. But he was a man of great moral character, and so this doctor took notice of him, and he was chosen to receive the super soldier serum, which would prompt him or promote him to the peak of human condition. Well, in the first movie, we find Roger's foe is a man named Johann Schmidt. And we find out that Johann Schmidt took the same serum that Captain America, Steve Rogers, received, but there was a major difference in the way their bodies related to one another, reacted to the formula. Rogers was enhanced. He was a skinny guy. He comes out all muscular bound, but he looks normal and handsome. When Schmidt took it, though, his face became disfigured. It turned red, and he became known as the Red Skull. And you can see his picture up there and see the difference between the two. So what caused the difference? Well, according to this theory, it was penicillin. In the transformation scene, skinny Steve Rogers is getting ready, and he's in this sterile lab, and he's going in, and the doctor comes and gives him a shot, and he says, oh, well, that wasn't too bad. And the doctor says, well, that was penicillin. And it's kind of an in-joke, but it just kind of seemingly passed over. But then his body responded the way it should have, and Schmitz did not. And the theory says that the penicillin that was given to Rogers killed off all this bacteria that was growing within him, killed the bacteria from the body. And so when he was grown, when he was transformed, it had the effect only upon him and the good bacteria that helped with his immune system. So he can't even get drunk on alcohol in the movie. Well, Schmidt did not receive the penicillin shot. He was not in a sterile lab. And so the treatment that he received not only amplified him, but amplified the bacteria within his body and caused disfigurement of his face and attacking his body. 
And the movie didn't go really into detail on this, so this is just a theory. And the movie itself focused on inherent personality qualities, that Schmidt was driven as a personality for power and prestige, while Steve simply wanted to do the right thing. But as I thought about this theory, I thought about the fact that not only do we have this bacteria that lives within us that we don't really think about, but there's other things that live within us that we don't really think about or acknowledge most of the time. There's a beast that lives within us. And it's not bacteria that I'm talking about, but what William Shakespeare termed the green-eyed monster. Within each of us, envy constantly rears its ugly head. And so if you and I are going to live by the principles we find in God's word and and we want to love God and love others, then we must put to death the beast that resides within us. And so the final commandment of the 10 deals with this monster, and it says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the commandment uses a term there in, in the Hebrew, which is thamad. I think I said that right, thamad, which is translated here in this version as covet, and is usually translated as covet. And it means to desire something, to long for something, or to crave something. And so as we look at the nature of envy, we find that this is not, the word covet itself is not necessarily a negative word. You can covet good things. Scripture often uses the same word to talk about a desire for godliness, a desire for holiness, a desire for God. I've used this term saying, I covet your prayers. Now, are prayers a bad thing? Does that make me sinful if I say I'm coveting your prayers? No, because I'm coveting something, desiring something that is good or even godly. But the context of this verse makes it clear that in this case, coveting is not a good thing because God is commanding against it. The prohibition is against desiring things that don't belong to you, but belong to somebody else that belong to your neighbor. And so he uses the term, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do you think that means just his physical house? Well, oftentimes in scriptures, it is used to refer to the whole of his possessions. And here he goes into more detail about some specifics of the neighbor's house. Don't desire his wife. Don't desire his servants. Don't desire his animals. Don't desire anything else that he has. And then if you look at the account in Deuteronomy, there's, it's pretty much the same, except for there's a couple of minor differences. Moses separated the wife into her own category and put her at the beginning. He says, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his household. And then he added another category. He says, don't covet your neighbor's field. Well, while they're wondering around in the wilderness from the Exodus account, there's not much concern about wanting the field because there are no fields. They don't have any land. They're just wandering around. But as they're entering into the promised land in Deuteronomy, they're going to be given land. The land is going to be parceled out. And he says, don't covet your neighbor's 
land, to covet his fields. But what we find here is the prohibition isn't really against coveting per se, but it's against envy. Envy as opposed to covetousness. Envy is a resentful and dissatisfied longing for something that belongs to somebody else. It can be a longing for someone's possessions. It can be a longing for someone's position, for their fortune, for their achievements, or for their success. Envy is a form of pride that's directed, instead of toward God, is directed toward another person. It's, it says that I'm as good or maybe even better than that person. And so I deserve the same things or greater things than what they have. And Envy says that your desires are greater than the rights of the other person. The other person has a right to his wife. He has a right to his property. But Envy says, my rights are greater than his rights. It is envy and it is greed that leads to all these other crimes that we've been looking at up to this point. Think about the commands we've covered. Why do you think one might lie or give false testimony against his neighbor? Their rights don't matter. What I want is greater than their right to the truth. Why does one steal? Well, the thief thinks that his or her needs are greater than the rights of the true owner. And so since their need is perceived to be greater than their theft is justified because of their need. Why does one commit adultery? Well, the adulterer thinks that he or she deserves the rights of the pleasure of the spouse more than the rightful spouse. Why does one murder? Whatever benefits there come from the murder is determined to be of greater personal benefit to the murderer than the right to life of the victim. So we find that envy is the root. It is the root of all of these external actions. It's the heart of the matter. The, the final commandment looks beyond the actions to the motives of the heart. And Jesus talked about this a lot. People often act like Jesus came up with something new, that he took the law further than what it said in the Old Testament. But here we find that's not the case. He's just expounding upon the 10th commandment. Jesus affirmed the 10th commandment in Mark chapter 7, where he says, summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but it's the things that come out of the person that defiles him. And he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come these things. Evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. And so this command shows that what you think is important determines what you do. What a person meditates on and thinks about, dwells on, that is what a person is, and it determines what a person does. If you dwell on envious thoughts, you act against the Ten Commandments, whether it be lying, whether it be murder, adultery, or whatever. So simply to envision these things is contrary to God's law. 
Simply to meditate upon these things is what breaks the law. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said that murder begins in the heart. If you have, he said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister is already subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to the hellfire. He said, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in their heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your heart determines that you want something, you're going to do what you must to get what you want. Have you ever played the card game Spoons? If you've never played, players take turns trying to collect a pair of, or a four of a kind. And then once someone gets four of a kind, they reach out and take a spoon, and then everybody else has to try to get a spoon. And if you don't obtain a spoon, then you're out, and there's always one spoon less than the number of people playing. And people will do whatever they have to to get those spoons. Those who are more mischievous will slyly reach up and quietly take one, and then it disappears, and before too long, everybody starts to notice there's not as many spoons on the table than there was a minute ago. And then the fight is on. There's, everybody's diving in. There's fingers getting smashed. There's clawing hands trying to get a spoon. And after having played spoons with my wife's family and getting out fairly early with chunks of skin missing, I've decided to retire from spoons. <laughs> but the reality is that perfectly illustrates what happens when you have an envious heart. You... Try to do whatever you can to get whatever you want. And envy is not a new thing. It's existed since the beginning. Genesis chapter 4, Cain envied Abel. Abel's sacrifice was favored by God and Cain's was rejected. And Cain became envious of Abel's position with God. And so what happened? Cain slew his brother Abel, and we had the first murder. Scripture says that Esau envied Jacob. Jacob had received the blessing from Isaac that was supposed to go to Esau, but remember, Esau sold him the birthright. So Jacob actually became the rightful owner of that. But then Esau coveted the blessing. And it says that Esau determined in his heart to kill Jacob after his father Isaac died. Rachel envied her sister Leah because Leah gave birth to many sons, but Rachel was childless. And so Rachel decided that, well, I'll have to get around this by giving my servant girl to my husband and they can have a child together and it'll count toward mine. And so he did, she did that. Jacob had children by her and then he ended up having children by Leah's servant too. And then finally Rachel was able to have children. And so all in all, he had children by four different women. Joseph's brothers envied him because of his dreams and because of the favor of his father. And so what did they do? They faked his death, sold him into slavery. <clears throat> King Saul envied David because David had success in battle and he had popularity with the people. And so Saul began trying to murder David and attempted several times to murder David and failed. 
And I think one of the most telling examples comes from Mark 15, where Mark records that the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus because they were envious of him and his popularity with the people. And so from a human perspective, it was out of envy that Christ himself was crucified. Now, we know that it was God's plan and God used that, but it was the sinfulness of the heart, the envy of Christ that led to his crucifixion. In Romans chapter 7, Paul wrote, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. And he gives this example. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And then listen to this. In sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. The reality of envy is undeniable. It has always existed, and if you look in the world around us, you see it everywhere. People desire to have power. They desire to hoard the resources for themselves. They desire to take whatever they need, whatever belongs to others in their quest for fulfillment. And yet, in gaining everything, they find nothing. One of the most common forms is the desire for wealth. And we disguise it under other terms. We call it financial freedom. We believe that if we can just obtain a certain amount of money, whatever that is determined to be, then we'll be free to do whatever we want. We'll be happy. But friends, financial freedom isn't having a pile of money. Because no matter how big the pile, if your security is found in physical wealth, then you're actually not finding financial freedom, but you're finding financial bondage. You're enslaved to your wealth. If you desire relationships, you constantly enter into relationships and you're so afraid of people leaving you that you will do anything to keep them with you. You allow them to walk all over you. You become a people pleaser and you're enslaved in unhealthy relationships. If what you desire is influence, then you only associate with people who can get you what you want. You don't love the least of these. Christ said, but you only use people for your purposes. And when they're no longer useful for you, you set them aside. Not loving them, but using them. This is the reality of the world that we live in. Envy, covetousness are ever-present. So scripture warns repeatedly about envy and its cousins greed and coveting. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. So if you're a church, there should not be any covetousness within you. If you're a Christian, there shouldn't be any covetousness, any envy within you. And Paul even identifies envy as idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, he writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because the desire for those things replaces the desire for God. And envy doesn't care about God's ways does not desire the Lord, nor does it trust in God for his provision. See, covetousness, 
envy, greed, they're all forms of faithlessness. So how do we defeat envy? How do we defeat envy? See, envy and covetousness enslave us, but God liberates his people. He gave us this law, not as a restrictive burden to his people, but as a path for freedom. The law was, and it still remains, a means to allow God's people liberty. So whatever one dwells on and determines in their heart, if you dwell on what you don't have, then you think about how to get what you don't have. And you give in to covetousness, you give in to envy. Sierra read earlier from Philippians 4 and verse 8 about what we should dwell on. Paul says, dwell on these things. These are the things of God. Whenever you love the Lord with all your heart, you don't spend it, spend your time scheming against your neighbor. You spend time dwelling on God and his his priorities. You learn how to love. So Paul says that love does not envy in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So how do we defeat the green-eyed monster? Well, first of all, you delight in the Lord. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, and your justice like the noonday. So you begin by finding your delight in the Lord and not in the things of this world. The last commandment, the last commandment deals with motivations, but the first commandment deals with the foundations. And if the foundation is correct, that's going to lead you in the right path. So if you start with this commandment, that you should not have any other gods before me. You're not going to chase after all these possessions. You're not going to worry about what Jim Bob has that you don't. You're going to be worried about finding the things of God. If your foundation is in the Lord, your motivation follows. The first commandment reminds us that right thought leads to right action. And the last commandment reminds us that wrong thought Wrong ideas lead to wrong action. So we start with the right foundation, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Delight in Him, and He will give you the desires of your heart, which if you're delighting in Him, what is the desire of your heart? Him. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. Second of all, you have to be content with what God has given you. You know, Thanksgiving's this week. I know probably most of us are already looking forward to a great Thanksgiving dinner. And by the way, if you aren't going to be with other family, let me invite you to join our family here in this room on Thursday at 1230, and we'll have a meal together. But I want you to think about this. Imagine your Thanksgiving dinner, right? You're surrounded by turkey and stuffing or dressing, whichever you use. You've got green bean casserole. You've got all kinds of desserts. You've got the pumpkin pie and the, the pecan pie and M&M cookies and that pink cherry stuff that I don't know what it's called, cherry stuff. You sit down at the meal and you begin to eat and you eat and you eat until you're satisfied 
or till you're full, or if you're like most of us, past the time you're full. And then you finally push yourself back from the table, start doing some push-ups or push-aways. You're content with what you've had, and now you don't want any more. At least you'll say, not right now, right? You want more? Not right now, Grandma. Give me a few minutes to let this digest, and I'll have some more. But what happens if you say, yeah, go ahead, keep piling on. Let's continue stuffing ourselves. At some point, what happens? If you eat and eat and eat too much, you start to feel sick, right? You, you start to, you, you just want to go lie down and take a Thanksgiving nap, maybe. Or if you're like me, you want to go sit on the couch and watch football. You certainly don't want to go help with the dishes, do you? You feel groggy, miserable. Man, I shouldn't have eaten so much. Envy makes us worthless. It causes damage to us, actually. Listen to what Scripture says. It says in Proverbs 14, Envy makes the bones rot. Mmm, powerful. Causes damage to us, but contentment combats envy. In that same passage, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Paul wrote in Philippians 4 about being content. And uh, to paraphrase, I went to the message, and this is how they put it. Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. So to incapacitate this green-eyed monster, contentment in Christ is the key. But here's my concern. We can incapacitate the green-eyed monster through being content, but I don't think we slay it. We paralyze it, but we don't kill it. So I think something further is needed. And what do you think that might be? As I was thinking about the opposite of greed, the opposite of envy, my first thought was contentness, contentedness, being content with what you have. Then I realized it goes further than that. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 21. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, right? So, so far we've got this covetousness, don't want to work for what I, what I want. I'm just craving things. But the righteous gives and does not hold back. The way to heal it is with charity. You've got to give generously. The wicked are envious, desiring to take from others those things which they desire, but the righteous are generous. And they give to the one who asks. Jesus said in Matthew 5, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And he said in Luke chapter 6, give and it will be given to you. A good measure will be pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Paul told Timothy in his first letter to him, instruct them to do what is good, speaking of the churches, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. So in practicing generosity, we've been commanded to do it, but we also follow the example of Christ. And we are a witness to the nature of Christ to those around us. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambit or con- ambition or conceit, 
but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And adopt the same attitude that is of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. Generosity is inherent in Christ's nature. He came and he gave of himself. And that generosity benefits God, but it also benefits the individual believer. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9. Paul writes, the point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely. He gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces what? Thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Right? Our giving is resulting in expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassable grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Generosity slays the green-eyed monster. It doesn't seek fulfillment in the things of this world, but what it seeks is to display the, right, the riches of God, the righteousness of God to those who are around us. Therefore, Paul wrote to the Ephesians chapter 4, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his hands and the purpose for this, so that he has something to share with anyone who is in need. That's why we work. Not just to gain up and hoard up riches for ourselves, but to give to those who are in need. So as we prepare to celebrate the blessings that God has given us this week, as we take time of special Thanksgiving, celebrating this holiday, let us not be envious, but let us be generous. As our God himself is generous. He's so generous that even while we were enemies against God, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, if you repent and believe that Christ is Lord and confess him as God and Savior. So if you haven't done that, let me encourage you to do that tonight. Be generous, be content in what you've got, and above all, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's go to him in prayer.